girls have grabbed me by my lingam more times than I can count on my fingers and my toes. That and is it, just invasive. And they get mad at me when I say stop. <laughs> it's crazy. Welcome back to the Rena Malik MD podcast. This is Dr. Rena Malik, urologist and pelvic surgeon. Today, our guest is Mike Johnson, a TV personality best known for his appearance on The Bachelorette, a veteran of our country, and a sexologist boarded by the American Board of Sexology. During our conversation today, he talks about his experiences growing up as a child and in school learning about sex. He also talks about his experiences being on The Bachelorette and after being on The Bachelorette in terms of his experiences with women and unwanted touching. We talk about sexology and the approach to sexual health through a lens of sexology in terms of improving sexual dysfunction through downregulation of the sympathetic nervous system. We also talk about ways which you can last longer and the four pillars to living your best life. Mike, thanks so much for doing this. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I have really enjoyed getting to know you. It's been really fun and exciting, and uh, it's really an honor to be a part of your life. Uh, in this way and hopefully to continue. No, definitely so. Thank you for saying not interesting, right? Uh, because the word interesting, people often say when they know what my field is. Yeah. And so for you to say fun uh, and get to know me, I appreciate that a lot. So thank you. Yeah. And you've lived quite a life. You've had like multiple jobs. You were in the Air Force. Is that right? I was. Yep. Yes. You're in the Air Force. You uh, had a, prof a financial job for some period of time. Mm -hmm. Then you were on The Bachelor, or Bachelorette, sorry, let me be clear. And 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 then you became a sexologist. Did I miss something in there? Um, a best-selling author. Oh, yes, and a best-selling <laughs> author. We can't forget that. Uh, but among many accomplishments, right? But sort of like you've had a very interesting life path. And I'm curious to know, in terms of your childhood, how did that sort of play into... One, just you taking on all these challenges, and two, your sort of experience in terms of how you learned about like interacting with people, having romantic relationships with people, and ultimately about sex. Yes, a lot. Uh, thanks a lot, truly. I marvel at it myself, but I grew up living around the world. I was a military brat, and so experiencing different culture helped out a lot. And so for me to be able to travel so much, expanding my mind. The aspect of how I came into the sex world and all the different things that I've done, I've always said I wanted to be a sexologist. I remember when I was 18, I said that when I was in college. Never thought it would take place or happen, and then it just did. The military, honestly, was just a means to an end. I grew up in a position to where I wasn't happy in that environment, and the military was the most financially intelligent and just the best way for me to grow up. And so that's what the military was. And then I never even knew what a wealth management advisor was, I'm not gonna lie to you. I never even heard of it prior to becoming that. I had a job doing the same thing I did in the military, but as a civilian, mm -hmm. and I quit one day because it was boring. I was falling asleep at work. I didn't want to die doing that job. No offense to people that do that job. I'm not going to say what it was. But I went to a job fair, and I wore a suit. And a guy stopped me. He said, you know what? I stopped you. I said, no. He's like, because you wore a suit. I said, well, aren't you supposed to wear a suit at a job fair? And he worked at Edward Jones, and then we chopped it up and just had a conversation. And then I love challenges. And so I became the number one uh, financial advisor at that company. That's so awesome. Yeah. That's so awesome. You mentioned that you traveled a lot uh, around the world. And you said, th I, I think I heard somewhere 30 countries uh, sort of lived. I would say probably closer to 50, 55. Wow. Oh, okay. Okay. So tell me, what were some of your highlights? Norway. Yeah. I love Norway. That's my favorite. 
by far. So I have asthma mm -hmm. and I'm able to tell the air quality, how good I can breathe or how bad I can breathe. And in Norway has been the only country to date to where I left the airport and was like, <sighs> truly, like yeah. Norway was it for me. And then just being out in nature in the fjords, uh, kayaking in between the mountains was amazing. It was breathtaking. That's awesome. My favorite place I've ever been. Yeah. The Nordic countries are really something. I haven't visited them yet, but it just seems like such a lovely place. The education system's excellent. Um, they're very healthy. They live a very healthy lifestyle. I don't know what they're doing there that we need to... Well, they do a lot there. In fact, they do really take care of their citizens. I think that's it right there. Yeah. <laughs> that, that we don't have the means to do so, I think, because we're just a larger country. Mm -hmm. And then you mentioned that, you know, you left a job that you were bored at. And while that sounds like very intuitive, it's actually very hard to do. It's yes. very hard to leave something that's stable financially and to take a challenge and go try to do something new. So tell me about that. I once asked my, my father gave me advice one time. He's, I didn't know what to do when I graduated high school. I have refused to go into debt. That's a, that's always been a thing about me. Debt is doing everything backwards twice unless we're talking about like an investment type of debt. Mm -hmm. That's just how I've always been since like elementary school. I just do not like debt. It's just disgusting to me yeah. in terms of buying something that I just couldn't wait for. And so when I left the job, I saved up money to be able to pay for rent for up to a year. Wow. Because um, that's really hard to do. Yes. <laughs> Definitely. So. I mean, the average person has like a couple hundred bucks in their bank account. I think it's like, you know how bad it is just talking from a financial aspect? If you live in America or any country in the world and you have zero debt but $5, you're wealthier than 95% in the world. That's wild. Wild to me, bizarre is that, and we are over a trillion dollars in credit card debt right now, I think. It's just got to be intelligent with your money and like, Impulse no, control, I mean, yes. Impulse yeah. control. Oh, yeah. And I think, well, debt is is really challenging. And as a physician, we all go into debt unless yes. we're very lucky. Fortunately, I've been able to pay off my debt, and my parents were very helpful. Correct. Uh, and my, my husband has been very helpful in those regards. But I would say that um, debt is definitely a part of life for a lot of physicians. And yeah. A lot of people who go into graduate school and even college, but any sort of extended sort of education, the debts are just enormous. And so it's really important to sort of manage those things. But this is not a financial talk, so we won't go. <laughs> we won't go oh, so we can. We can do that. <laughs> Some of the best moments in life are spontaneous, unplanned. But for men dealing with moderate to severe erectile dysfunction or ED, preparing for intimacy can rob you and your partner of spontaneity. The joy of living in the moment. Now you can restore that spark in your relationship with the AMS 700 implant, a clinically proven permanent solution designed for your satisfaction and your partners. It's the number one physician preferred implant. It's built to look and feel natural. Happy partners agree. 92% of patients and 96% of their partners report sexual activity with the implant excellent or satisfactory. It gives you the ability to respond to your partner's wishes in the moment, not minutes or hours later. The AMS 700, no pills, no injections, no waiting. For more information, visit edcure.org slash podcast. That's E-D-C-U-R-E dot O-R-G slash P-O-D-C-A-S-T. Sponsored by Boston Scientific. 
Guys, do you ever find yourself dragging through the day, low on energy, having trouble in the bedroom, or just not feeling like yourself? You might be experiencing something more common than you think, testosterone deficiency or low T. Did you know that low testosterone affects about 40% of American men over 45? As men age, testosterone levels continue to decline. You might notice signs like impotence, changes in sexual desire, depression, reduced muscle mass, or even fatigue. But here's the thing. It's not just about low T. It's about your overall well-being. That's where Rethink Testosterone comes in, a great resource for all men to learn about how testosterone affects their bodies. Rethink Testosterone is your go-to platform with tons of educational content and evidence-based scientific studies that go over everything you want to know about testosterone, from how low testosterone affects you to the common myths about testosterone replacement therapy and options for treatments. So check out RethinkTestosterone.com, your hub for all things testosterone and low T. Rethink Testosterone is on a mission to change the narrative and stigma around men's hormone health. Why wait? Visit RethinkTestosterone.com today and consider checking your testosterone levels. Always remember, you're worth it. Rethink Testosterone, because understanding your health is the first step to owning it. Head to www.RethinkTestosterone.com today and make taking care of your body a priority. And then tell me in terms of like, how did you learn about sex? Did you and your family have conversations about it? Because I can tell you, for me personally, in South Asian households, we don't talk about sex, at least in my parents' generation. My parents immigrated from India and that generation that immigrated newly from India, they never talked about sex. The only thing I was told from my mother was all men want is sex, stay away from them. And <laughs> that was the entirety of the conversation. So I learned nothing from my parents. And so I'm curious in terms of how did you learn about it at home? Isn't it funny how, based on what you just said, isn't it funny how the people that love us the most, they want to protect us, but at times that protection could be shielding. Yeah. And it's just crazy in and of itself, especially in regards to sex. But at home, that wasn't a conversation. I think I mentioned my mom just gave me a pamphlet <laughs> about testicular, make sure you check yourself. And yeah. I was like in middle school and that was it. We didn't talk about it. And then my father, his entire life, and. I actually make fun of him now because I'm 35 with no children. My entire life with him in my life has been work condoms, work condoms, work condoms. That's been the only message that it's he a good said. Message. It's a good message, yes. Yeah. But now I'm 35. He's like, man, when are you going to give me a kid? I'm like, <laughs> work condoms. <laughs> and true. so, yeah, I'm stuck it's with true. that message in my head. We joke in South Asian society, or especially with the women, they tell you, don't date, don't date. And then once you become 18, 20, 25, they're like, well, when are you getting married? Well, you told us our yeah. whole life not to date. And then as soon as we get married, where are the children? Where are the children? Where are the children? And so it's so funny, right? In South Asian culture, I mean, the Kama Sutra comes from India. Yes. yes. And we don't talk about sex. Like, it is very shameful. That's bizarre. I just thought about that. Thank you for saying that. I never put two and two together. Yeah. That's yeah. so crazy. People have a lot of shame around it. And, you know, I, I can't speak for the African-American culture, but I think that it's a little bit more discussed in African-American culture than it is the South Asians. And still, I think oh, there's a lot of shame. And I think part of it goes back to school, yeah. right? What we learn about sex. So as we didn't learn about it from home, what about in school? What was your experience? Nothing in school. I honestly don't remember a single solitary thing in school about sex, not even a class. I do remember this. I remember my hickey. I'm sorry, my teacher came home with a hickey. Oh, your teacher came with a hickey. She came to work with a hickey, shall I say. Yes. And I was just attracted to her for some reason. I was like, oh, she has a hickey. I'm going to be attracted to her. This was sixth grade. My home ec teacher. I'll never, ever forget it. That's the closest 
we've ever talked about sex at all at school. Wow. It just was not a subject that we talked about. Even when we had a lot of, because I went to an inner city school in uh, Grand Prairie, Texas, or at least high school, shall I say. I went to a boatload of middle school, I'm sorry, elementary schools and two ele- two middle schools. But even when we had a lot of pregnancies during high school, it was it still wasn't a conversation. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I, I only remember learning about how to put a condom on. That's all I think we learned about. We probably talked about consent, although I don't really recall having that conversation. There's so much more to talk about. And I realize that schools have a big burden. They have to teach us a lot yeah, of things yes. in a small amount of time. But if we're not learning about it at home and we're not learning about it at school, where are we learning about it? Also, before I get to my next question, you grew up in all these different places. Was sex talked about differently in other countries? Do you remember this? Not as a child, but when I moved back to Europe as a young adult, sex was talked about, sex was on TV screens, and it was was perceived differently, right? Mm -hmm. Versus America, it's just shunned away. Mm -hmm. But in Europe, it's liberating. Yeah. And that opened my eyes so much, especially with how to deal with like my younger sister and how to deal with women that I love and care about that are a part of my family, right? That's a conversation we often don't talk about. Mm-hmm. And I think in Europe, they helped me a lot to just realize it's a liberation. It's your body. It's yeah. free. I think it's a Danish cartoon that came out a couple of years ago. And the whole premise of the cartoon, I don't really understand. I think it's supposed to be funny, but the premise of the cartoon is that this little boy has a very long penis. Like it's so long, it's like wrapping around things. And it's like, and, and the, this was a whole cartoon about it. And, you know, from their perspective, it's humor. It's like normalizing body parts. But when I talked about it, when, when it came out originally, there was a lot of people who were like offended, you know? Danish Visceral. or American? American. Okay. Yeah. They were like, why would we be showing our kids this? Yes. And as you know, we talked about this before, I'm a big proponent of talking to your kids in terms, in true anatomic terms. They need to know Agreed. penis, vagina, vulva, testicles, not um, hoo-ha, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> insert whatever you want to use. But they each know the true terms. One, because God forbid something happens, they can explain it to you appropriately. And two, because when they explain it to their doctor, they need to be able to tell them what is going on and not just say it hurts down there or something's wrong down there. So I think it's it's really important and we need to start the education at home. We definitely do. I think that it's all isn't it a part of our makeup to where if we're not told if we're told not to do something that we automatically want to do X. Yeah. Right. If we're not told nothing about something, then we're going to be curious and explore. And so I love what you say about teaching young children proper names of things. There's a story I have, which I'm not going to go into great detail because it's parental warning, shall I say. Mm-hmm. But it was a young child who was being taken advantage of, and they were telling their parents what was going on, but they were using cookie terms. Mm. And their parents, with their busy lives, was like, what are you talking about? No big deal. And kept it moving. And this went on and went on and went on yeah. until finally the parents, what are you talking about my cooking? And then they found out. And it's just... I so agree with you. We have to tell our children, this is the term. A word is not going to hurt someone. Especially when we're talking about a medical word. Yeah. Like, this is a biology we're talking about here. Yeah. No, it's it's absolutely true. And it's really sad, but true. And, you know, unfortunately, and I don't want to make this a very sad podcast, but like, <laughs> I, I think, you know, um, child abuse is, is common. It's more common than it's reported in boys and girls. So it's really important to talk to your kids about these things and say that if someone touches you down there, the only one that should touch you is your parents or your doctors. And only if it's necessary, right? If we're doing an exam or we're helping you get dressed or whatever the case may be. 
and anything outside of that is not appropriate. And so they know that. And then they can tell you if, say, someone does something inappropriate at school or whatever, the babysitter, the whatever, you know, someone else they come into contact with that they can be open with you and say, you know what, that mommy, daddy told me this was not appropriate. No, definitely. And about the abuse aspect, during COVID quarantine, shall I say, uh, child abuse rose like crazy uh, in that time frame. And then also, I think that people are scared to talk to their children about sex because they think that they're going to explore it more. Mm-hmm. When if you're informed about something, you can make an educated decision. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I've told my kids, if you have a question and you ask me, I will answer it. I want them to get the knowledge from me and not from somewhere else. So where did you learn about sex growing up? Yeah, it wasn't in the house. <laughs> <laughs> no offense to my mom. It wasn't, just wasn't in the house. Yeah. Uh, my dad just worked on him. Uh, <laughs> literally to this day. Work on him. Well, now he's like, where are the kids? <laughs> yeah, well, now he's like, where are the kids at? Him and his wife, where are the kids at? I'm like, dude, it's your fault. But um, I got caught watching porn one time. My mom was mad at me. My aunt said, well, at least he's learning from somewhere, which is incorrect information. But at yeah. the time, I was I was like, okay, I'm learning. This is where I learned? Yeah. Yeah. There was no conversation like that whatsoever. I just had to, in the military, I became what you call a victim's advocate. I was the only male on the entire base that did that. A victim's advocate is someone who, you get a small amount of training, about 40 hours of training. As a victim's advocate, what your job is to do is you get a cell phone for like a weekend, Friday to Sunday, and if that cell phone answers, I don't care what you're doing, you pick up the phone mm-hmm. and you show love, kindness, and compassion to whoever's on the other end of that phone. And because, and the reason so is because in the military, if someone were to take advantage of you and you were to speak out about it, based on our laws within the military, Depending on who you are, most people automatically have to go to the police. And someone that's a victim of assault, that's reliving traumas that they may not be ready to live or may not ever want to live. And then it becomes down to, uh, I don't know how to say he said, she said without saying it like that. But it could be he said, he said, or she said, she, she said, or whatever the case may be. They said, they said, however we want to talk about it. But And so I did that and I learned a lot about, a little bit about sex, I would say at that time, more so about how to be there for someone. And then I decided to become a certified sex coach. Uh, thank you for doing that. I'm sure you helped a lot of people doing that, and that's a, a big volunteer thing. Yeah, it's a truly volunteer. You know, yeah. and it makes a big difference for a lot of people to know there's someone on the other end. And I already thank you for your service because I I have a special place in my heart for veterans. I work at the veterans hospital, and the things that people go through in the military stay with you. Yeah, and I see it every single day. Almost all of my patients have PTSD to this day, and they may have served 20 to 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. It's a huge sacrifice for our country, and I don't think there's enough words in the English language to say how much gratitude we owe you. So thank no. you. I appreciate you for working at the VA and helping thank all you. of our soldiers out. Thank you for that. You know, interestingly, the reason I asked why we learned, how you learned about sex is because everyone's experience is a little different. I think a lot of people learn from pornography like you did um, because that's easily accessible, particularly now. I can't even imagine. Yeah, it's just like everywhere. You have a screen of any kind, it's going to be there. Yeah, and when, I mean, when I was growing up, I joke with people, but you had to find a video. You had to find a VCR. You had to find a TV with a VCR that nobody was watching that you could close the door, and most people didn't have that, right? It just made me think of, uh, this is so crazy. I have not had this thought since it took place. Wow, this is crazy. I'm about to say this. My first memory of porn was watching Howard Stern. Yeah. And it was blocked out kind of like it was oh, like like you couldn't blurred, yeah. it was blurred out you couldn't really see it but to me as a child that was what it was yeah you know i wasn't i'm i'm, I'm born in the 80s and so the early 90s 
that's what it was. And so crazy to think now it's so, so much more. Wow. Yeah. I don't know if you remember this, but another big thing that people used to do was, you know, hide magazines like yes. under the bed oh, or, wow. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> or all sorts of places. But yeah, I got to tell this. I got to tell this. This is so, <laughs> I'm just telling myself so much right now. So, um, I used to start going to see my father during the summers. Right. <laughs> and I remember this is so embarrassing. Oh my God. So two things <laughs> took place. One, there was a group of us young guys who had a single magazine yeah, and it was like in the woods somewhere. It was like in a, <laughs> a spot we had in the woods because, of course, we couldn't have it. Yeah, and it was in the woods. so stupid. Like, what were like, what were you thinking? You, as a kid? You're probably not alone. Yeah, like we had one magazine. It's like ten of us guys, and it was one in the woods. And no, for those out there, we did not pleasure ourselves, right? Like, you know. And then two, I went to go start seeing my father during the summers, and I had a VHS, <laughs> a VHS tape that I buried in the backyard. <laughs> so you'd have to like dig it out, uh, clean it, like shaking it. Like, I still have to like shake. Yeah, I know, guys, so bad. Just <laughs> you know, but uh, so embarrassing. Oh, young Mike. Men, are you still searching for a solution for your erectile dysfunction? You know, the frustration of pills and injections and pumps? By the time you're ready, the moment may have passed. You and your partner can no longer enjoy the thrill of spontaneity, and scheduling time for intimacy may be a disappointment. Now, there's a way to be ready in the moment for as long as you need. The AMS 700 implant is a permanent ED solution designed for your satisfaction and your partners. Happy partners agree with 92% of patients and 96% of their partners reporting sexual activity to be excellent or satisfactory. So go ahead. Live in the moment with our clinically proven physician-preferred AMS 700. Learn more at edcure.org slash podcast. That's E-D-C-U-R-E dot O-R-G slash P-O-D-C-A-S-T. Sponsored by Boston Scientific. So where did you go if you had questions about sex? Like besides pornography, right? What did you do if you're like, I, I don't know about this or that, or am I doing this right? Or is this the way it's supposed to be? Like, who did you ask? The first time I uh, performed cunnilingus, I asked the girl yeah. if what I was doing was right. Well, that's really smart of you. And the term is eating out. And so I did a little munch, a little munch, a little <laughs> soft, of course, but yeah. I would just ask my partners. That's how I learned. And then when I was 19, I dated a 39-year-old. Mm-hmm. And I remember asking her a specific question I'll never forget to the rest of my life. I said, how do I not be like the guys that, like your age group, how do I not be like them? And she told me, she said, men get stuck in their ways as they age. If you have a partner and you've been monogamous for a long time, continue to pleasure her, you know, instead of just trying to get off on your yourself. And so I've just been one to always ask my partner. Yeah, you know, I that's interesting. That's not the first time I've heard that dating an older woman has actually been pivotal for yes. men's sexual experiences and learning how to be a better lover. And generally, sex is a skill, right? So everyone's bad in the beginning. Nobody is good right away. It doesn't matter the size of your organ or anything, how fit you are. It doesn't matter. It's a skill just like anything else. So it has to be learned and practiced. And so you can't just be good because you are, right? There is work behind it. And I think that's important for everyone to hear. So yeah, in terms of asking your partner, that is just really, really smart. And it, the hard part is that most people don't do that, right? Because yeah. they're so insecure, which is normal. We're all insecure when we have 
sex because it's a vulnerable act. Having sex is being vulnerable. And so in order to have pleasure during sex, you have to be okay with being vulnerable. And that requires talking to your partner. And so it's really actually mature of you that you did ask because that's so important. And there's actually data that shows that women who are older tend to have better orgasms. And my theory behind that and a lot of people's theory is that it's because they've had time to explore their bodies. They've had time to learn what they want to do. And they also have had more experience. So they're more sexually confident and they're more able to ask for what they need. And so... Um, that's where I think that when younger men date older women, they get to learn from that experience. Not to say that I'm adv- advising for it or not or against it, but um, it is an interesting observation. No, all the ladies listening are loving that you're saying this. <laughs> yes, Dr. Malik says young guys. <laughs> so outside of you know your cunnilingus things, what are some other things that you know now that you thought you understood really well when you were younger and you sort of like your mind has changed? Like you said, just... The size of your organ doesn't determine the outcome of the pleasure. Mm-hmm. And so learn that, definitely learn that. The number one thing you should do is ask, what do you like? And if that person doesn't know what they like, then it's a conversation of like, hey, I'm going to say it bluntly now, but obviously it's not like that in a moment. But if I ask, what do you like? And you don't know what you like, how you expect me to be able to please you? It's just more of a, I think sex is like a symphony of communication, fun, pleasure, adventure, being naked, not just in the sense of the lack of clothing, but being naked in terms of heightened emotions. And so I've learned the biggest thing is just if you can make your person feel secure and confident and have fun with it. Because funny stuff happens during sex. You might fart, you know, a hairpiece might fall out, a dog might be in a room and like lick your leg, whatever the case might happen, right? And so you kind of, you got to go with it and just have fun with it and be open and honest. And like Brene Brown says, vulnerability builds bridges. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think sex is supposed to be pleasurable, but sometimes it's awkward or sometimes mm-hmm. it's um, doesn't end up the way you want to because you're disrupted, especially when you've got kids, right? You're like, don't walk in my room or like whatever. Your yeah. kid wakes up in the middle of the night and you're like, you're supposed to be sleeping. <laughs> like whatever it is, these things happen and it doesn't mean life is over. Sex is okay to be mediocre sometimes and the goal should always be pleasure. But the ability to communicate with your partner and realize like one day where it's not perfect or not great doesn't change your relationship or your dynamic dramatically. It's just one time. You know, everyone has a bad day, whether it's um, they have a bad hair day or they have a bad, um, you know, they have bad uh, tummy ache or whatever it is. Right. But like it goes in fluctuations and the same thing with sex. No, definitely. So it makes me think about how we describe what an orgasm is. Right. An orgasm, the way I would define it, is a peak of pleasure. It doesn't mean that it's an end goal. And I think a lot of us think of it as an end goal. Mm-hmm. But if you look at an orgasm like going to your favorite artist's concert, right? Why would you go into the concert just the last song? Mm-hmm. You want to experience what's going on from the first to the last song. If you're a diehard fan, which I would hope you are with your partner, you won't even want to see that you even want to see the opening acts. Mm-hmm. You want to go with your friends to the concession stands, maybe buy a t shirt. It's an experience so that you could talk about. And I think so many of us just like Give it to me now. I want an orgasm. And then we're so caught up in our heads that it's, that's not going to happen. Yeah. And mind, mindfulness is so important. So I think in terms of being vulnerable, you also have to be present. You can't be thinking about the hundred other things you have to do. You won't be able to enjoy it, right? Like I can't focus on this conversation if I'm thinking about the 20 things I have on my to-do list, right? And so you have, and similarly, when you're with your partner, you have to be present and That also goes to, you know, with desire, like it doesn't always come immediately. Like when we're young, 
right? We see our partner, we get super excited and we want to like go for it, right? We're like, I want to have sex today. Uh, but you know, when you're with your partner for a long time, that changes and you sort of like have to build that desire sometimes. You have to work at it and that's okay. That's normal. And I would love your thought, actually. I've read a lot of literature in regards to why our, not desire, but I believe it's our in a committed relationship and in a monogamous relationship, your, is it your testosterone that lowers? You know, I don't think that that's necessarily the cause and effect. Okay. But yes, they have seen that people who uh, are more so like have children actually is okay. the data. that okay. So the, the parents tend to have a little bit lower testosterone. Um, and again, I don't think it's cause and effect. I think it's just like as you Change. age and have more responsibilities and maybe your diet's not as good as it used to be, you know, the dad bod thing, like it's all sort of together, right? And that's how I look at what I do for as a sexologist. I think that a lot of the ailments that I'm able to help with, people go to see their doctor as they should, of course. And I think oftentimes it should be looked at as an integrative health approach in comparison to a doctor may say, well, this is what's going on. It may not even be that what that's what's going on. Yeah. It's just what they feel is going on. They work at it from a, a symptomatic approach versus a causal approach. And so that's how we as sexologists help people. And I think that right there in and of itself, when I think about relationships, it's like a fire. And then as you age and then as you your career changes, then you have kids and then, you know, I just spent a lot of money to go to Atlanta for Christmas. And, you know, there's so many other things going on. So therefore our fire kind of dwindles a bit and goes into these other areas. And so therefore it makes sense that your desire goes in a bit too. Yeah. I want to talk about sexology, but before I do that, I want to ask you about your experience on The Bachelorette. <laughs> uh, because from a different perspective, right, you've done tons of interviews about being on the show, but more like what was it like being a man and having to compete with other men for a woman's attention on a public stage? Like from a standpoint where like you're trying to show her all of all of you right not just your personality and your the way you're going to treat her but also like i'm going to be able to please you the best right compared to all these other men in in a, in a house like yeah. together yeah. like that's just a, a crazy social experiment in my mind that was definitely bizarre for sure one of the funniest things i always think about is that the show is one man or woman with 30 people it's by definition ethical non-monogamy <laughs> Yeah, it's that's what it is, and and so many people come at me because of my field, and I'm like, you know me because of The Bachelor, which is ethical non-monogamy or consensual non-monogamy or what I like to say, designer relationship. Mm -hmm. Yet and still, we can't have this conversation to be specific and succinct within The Bachelor. It's crazy because all the guys are good looking, they're all tall, they all got muscles, they all have you know not all, but most of them have come from a great background. And so it's like me not at the club no more where I'm the tall guy or I'm the good looking guy or I'm, I have my one thing, you have your one thing. It's like, no, all these guys have that thing. It's the all stars, right? Yeah. And talking very high for some of them. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is the all stars of guys and gals. And so for some reason that didn't hurt me because I remember one of the guys, I'm not gonna say his name. To me, he was a very good looking guy. I'm comfortable with my sexuality. And then he opened his mouth. Yeah. And I was like, oh, you know, competition. It was that simple for me. I was like, ah, no, no. My friend told me, one of my best friends, he said, uh, he told me a story about myself from sixth grade and how I was helping him to love himself. I've definitely had bouts of self-love, but I've never been one to suffer in the lack of self-love. And so I think on this show, I'm Mike motherfucker Johnson. And so that's how I approach myself and how I approach everything in life. And then after being on The Bachelor. That's the crazy part. Being on the show is cool. It's fun. Great. Yeah. After is the craziness because now you're dealing with and that's where the 
self-love comes in play. That's where the mental health comes in place. Yeah, I think at the time I had, when I first got the show, I had almost 800,000 followers and now about to be in 400,000s. And so therefore I've lost half my following because of things that I've said, me posting a girl, my girlfriend, just obscure things that people find offensive or people calling me the N-word, people saying I should be killed. All these crazy things that you hear about are true. People do say it all the time. Never will they ever say to my face. They're always kind and sweet. You know? That's the weird part about social media. Yeah. The things, people ask me all the time, do comments bother you when they're negative? And I say no, because that person would never they say would Never. Yeah, never. Yeah. And you know, say, dude, I can't expect everyone to like me, yeah. right? But in terms of like getting into relationships after the best. I think, again, I had an advantage because I was 31 when I went on the show. Mm -hmm. And I have lived a, a wonderful life thus far being around the world at that time, probably 30 countries or so, mm -hmm. and was great with ladies. I had no issue in that department, shall I say. And so being off the show as an older male, 31, 32, I wasn't old, but you get what I'm saying, a lot of them like 24, is difficult because you don't know what that girl or that guy, you know, depending on who you are, what they really want. Yeah. And sometimes what they want is just attention. Mm -hmm. And that attention is a bit different than a normal setting. Their attention that they want is to get their own brand deals to get on people in People Magazine themselves, be on TMZ themselves, right? All some some of the things in, in my past that they want to do now. And it's, it's then it's an aspect of, I, I think often, I talk to, to men about this often about, don't necessarily go for the girl that's just the most gorgeous, right? Mm -hmm. If you hit rock bottom, is she gonna be there with you? And so having to, to weave that out, right? I think there's an old quote, it was on IG, it was, a, it was a picture of Michelle and Barack, but it said, a man knows a woman is for him when he's at his lowest. And a woman knows her man is right for her when he has everything and he doesn't stray away. Yeah. And so I think that I've been in positions where I've had everything, TMZ, the, the People Magazine, the pop stars, celebrity dating I've done, all those aspects. And so I think personally only matured me even more. Did you feel like people had expectations of you in the bedroom? For sure, and it's more, I'm scared about that too. I was scared about that, shall I say. I'm, I'm, girls would say it. I slept with Mike Johnson, whether they did or didn't, literally, that's the crazy part right there. Whether they did or even didn't, they would still say it and then say how the performance was, which we all know, come on now, we know that's stupid. We know we shouldn't be doing that. If a guy did that to you, it would be blown out of proportion in comparison. Not saying it would be blown out of proportion. It would be blown out of proportion in comparison is what I'm saying. I think now I'm so happy I'm in a relationship because I can't imagine being a has-been TV personality and a sexologist and single in dating because the pressure would be, it probably would be extremely difficult. In terms of being an object as a yes, yes. male, I don't think people talk about this enough, but when you are a male celebrity, you get treated like an object more than people really give you credit for, right? People mm -hmm. are very handsy. People <laughs> feel like they can hug you, touch you, all those things without permission, whereas that would never be done the other way or shouldn't be done either way, shouldn't right? Shouldn't either way, yes. Um, but it, it certainly is less often done. Actually, I can't speak to that. I don't, I don't know, but at least on TV, it's less often done uh, to women. And talk about that. Girls have grabbed me by my lingam more times than I can count on my fingers and my toes. That and is it, just invasive. That's and they get mad at me when I say stop. <laughs> it's crazy. It is really crazy when I think back on all those times and get really get mad at me. I swear to you, we'll make up a crazy allegation right there on the spot. I remember the one thing, the one piece of advice my mom gave me when I got off the show, be careful, Mike. 
I've told you your whole life how to treat a woman, but now you're in this position to where women are gonna be coming at you left and right, throwing themselves at you, be careful. She was talking about when I hug a fan, mm -hmm. she was like, ask, can you put your arm around her? Being extremely vigilant, and it, it is unfair, and we don't have those conversations at all, and even myself will take the woman's side if I heard something. And so there is an aspect of cultural conditioning mm -hmm. that doesn't hear men out. And I'm a man that has been in that position. And even if it was wanted, it's an aspect of if there's something that I don't want, oh, why don't you want that? Mm -hmm. You you shouldn't want that. You're a man. And it's just like, come on, how dumb do we got to be? And yeah. I hate to say it so honest, but that's what it is. Well, I think we need to change that narrative, right? Men, boys, they should be able to say no, no, thank you. I don't want to be touched or hugged. And we should respect their boundaries too, you know? Sure. It's uh, it's really important. I almost don't even want to say it, but I'm going to say it. And if I get flack, I get flack. I wish we went, I quasi, went, and I say quasi because power and money can deter things. And I understand that. I hope people listening listen to this whole aspect that I'm saying. I quasi wish we went back to you're innocent until proven guilty. And I say quasi because, again, power and money can change things, and a lot of powerful people have gotten away with a lot of bad things. But at the same time, before I was being in a relationship, I was terrified, honestly, because a woman could say anything against me. And that's a fact. And like I said, myself, I'm going to take the woman's side. If Obviously, it wasn't me. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to take the woman's side and believe her more so than I'm going to believe the guy. And that's just the world we live in right now. We live in a world of you're guilty because someone said you did. No, it's very challenging. And I think uh, it's challenging for young boys growing up because they have to, um, and it's very important to ask for consent repeatedly over and over and over again. And also when you mix in alcohol and you mix in drugs or anything that someone else is doing, it can inhibit their ability to say no, and it can be very challenging to navigate. And I think it's important. I think you shouldn't be asking for consent over and over and over again, but it's very difficult because sometimes it's not that clear. It's not. And I think the consent conversation needs to be had again. I think the kink community does a wonderful, BDSM and kink community does a wonderful job in discussing what kink is, but something could happen the very next day to where a person felt as if they felt like they felt icky. They felt as if they, they know they said yes, for example, but they feel different now and they could place charges upon you, even though it was consensual in that very second, in that very moment. Even as a sexologist, I tell people, we already know what to do. We know to ask for consent. We know to be sober because a drunk person can't consent. Obviously, we know to be of legal consenting age. We know all these aspects of it, but nobody that I know of has ever, to include myself, asked 12 times, can I kiss you? Can I touch your lower back? Can I take off your top? You know, no one does every single aspect of every single emotion in that regard. And you know, I know we'll get into it a bit more, but I've listened to a lot of lived experiences from men and women. And I could tell you that it saddens me that one may even say yes to consent or say, yeah, they say yes by trying to do and please the other person. Mm -hmm. And so even if they person says yes, I'm going back to when I was a victim's advocate, and this is a parental advisory. A lot of the times, when someone would take advantage of someone else, they would give them a drug and they were courted. And on the camera, that person is saying yes. And then even if the police are involved, all that person does is like, here's the tape. And so, I mean, I'm getting goosebumps right now because the consent conversation needs to be had again. I don't think that consent is fully established the way it needs to be to help everyone.
It's really tough. It's really, really tough. It's really important, but there's a lot there. And I think you're right about the kink and BDSM community because they have very clear guidelines, very, right? Yeah. Very clear. Um, they, If you're participating, these are the rules. These are your safe words. These are where you stop. And, and it's very, very clear and sort of like contractual almost. Yes, very much so. And maybe that's, you know, we need to take a, a page out of their book. We 100%. Uh, again, that goes to the conditionings that we have. And if you are deviant in any way, or let me use a, a less strong word, if you are foreign to someone in any way, then you're automatically wrong. You are a danger. You are a threat. And people, kink and BDSM, they're not trying to be a threat to you. We can definitely learn from how yeah, they, they don't, use the work. They're not sense. trying to convert you. Yeah, right. Like, <laughs> they don't want you to join correct, the community. Correct, they don't want to be in it. Correct, you know, correct, they're, not, they're not out there trying to do anything like that. Correct, correct. You know, young men, we know that there is a larger percentage of young men, ages like 18 to 30, who are really experiencing a lot of loneliness. They're having less sex. Hey, guys. Low testosterone, or low T, affects about 30% of adult men in America. Are you feeling the drag of fatigue, noticing a dip in muscle mass, or sensing a slump in your libido? You might have low T, a condition that can significantly impact a man's life. Get your testosterone level tested. Kaizotrex is an FDA-approved pill that's changing the game in testosterone replacement therapy. Kaizotrex was shown to be effective in restoring testosterone levels in nearly 9 out of 10 clinical study participants. Each Kaizotrex oral capsule is uniquely formulated to be easily absorbed and bypass your liver to avoid liver damage. Patients also saw a decrease in sex hormone binding globulin and an increase in free testosterone. It's time to break free from injections, pellets, and gels. Choose Kaizotrex and take a step towards being the hero of your life. By prescription only, Kaizotrex is a controlled substance and can be a target of abuse. Kaizotrex is not for use in pregnant women or men with prostate or breast cancer. Safety and efficacy in those younger than 18 is not known. Tell your doctor about all medical conditions and medications. Serious side effects could include increased blood pressure, worsening prostate symptoms, increased risk of prostate cancer, blood clots in the legs or lungs, decreased sperm problems, liver problems, enlarged or painful breasts, and breathing problems while you sleep. Common side effects include swelling of the ankles, feet, or body, increased red blood cell count, and increase in prostate-specific antigen or PSA levels. PSA is a test used to detect prostate cancer. Report these symptoms to your doctor. Call your doctor to learn more about Kaizotrex. For questions or more information, visit www.kaizotrex.com or call 1-833-949-5040. What do you think? Is it this consent issue? Is it they're feeling less able to approach women or approach men or approach whatever gender they're into, right? Is there a part of that or what do you think is going on? I think it's a multitude of things. Thank you for the question. I think that quarantine uh, did not serve those young individuals, not necessarily on the 30, close to 30 side, but the more so the ones that are 18 to 21, right? Definitely didn't serve them well. Very awkward. Basically, I don't have no game. And then it comes to an aspect of, and even when we look at the mass shootings, right? A lot of the times the loneliness is a cause of that. Oftentimes people don't have connection anymore. People don't touch anymore. No, people don't hug anymore. And then social media aspect of that. Not even just social media, but Disney movies. So like since the 1920s, what has happened? What have we seen in all these Disney movies? We see the good looking guy on the horse, the chariot that is wealthy, that has money that all the girls want. And he goes after the best girl, right? And so all the little girls watching this are like, I need this guy. And all the little boys are like, I need to be this guy. But all the boys aren't going to be six foot four. You know, and so 
I think it's a, a perpetual issue on so many different fronts that's leading us to this. We, we talk about here in the U.S., but then I think about our sisters and brothers on the eastern side of the world who their virgins on average in, until the age of 29, I believe, in Japan. And then also it's, a, it's an aspect of what we've seen our parents go through, the divorce rate, I mean, and how it's affecting children. Yeah. And so I think it's so many different pieces. It's like a, a cocktail in a blender. We can't just pinpoint it on one thing. It really is. You, you touched on so many important things. I think really there is sort of this culture of uh, I got to have a six foot guy who makes a six figure salary with a six inch organ and they have to check all these boxes. But the average salary of men in this country is forty thousand dollars. As a as a black man, it's even less than that. Right. Yeah. And so I'll talk about myself, for example, I'm six four. I make over six figures I'm well in Oregon and I've been on TV and so therefore it's like I want this guy now this guy has an entire pool to look at exactly. from my best friend that one of my best friends that got me on the show he's not six plus he's not x y and z and so therefore what is what is he to do and so most guys in my position they take everything right and now they're bad guys but the girls only continually want that guy, even though he's a bad guy and he's gonna continue to be a bad guy. And then on the flip side of that, a lot of these guys, like one of my friends who's 5'7", will do all the things. He's gonna be extremely pleasurable in bed and outside of bed. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these guys that, you know, one of my friends, she's a sexologist as well. She said, Mike, you know, I looked at you and I just assumed you'll be bad in bed. Because <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to be good at Because you don't have to be good in bed, right? And so a lot of these guys, they're not even good in bed. Yeah, you know, they don't have to be. They don't got to be, right? Yeah. And so, ladies, you might be missing out on something great. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's. I mean, I don't think anyone should settle, mm -hmm. but I think we need to open up our horizons. And I haven't told this story publicly, but the way I met my partner, my husband, was online. Mm -hmm. And it was before it was cool to meet online. You know, we were, it was not cool. It was very awkward to meet someone online when we met. And he was not my type at all. Mm -hmm. Like literally um, was, was not, does not care about clothing. Like is much more, he's a very secure person. He could care less what people think about what he's wearing. Very, very smart, but just not the kind of guy that I would have looked at and been like, oh, I want that. When we met, he was just the most amazing human mm -hmm. being. The person that I can talk to as a best friend who I can rely on. Um, wonderful in every aspect and has been a wonderful father. And thank God I opened my eyes to, to look beyond something as simple as clothing, yes. right? Or yes. or just, you know, simple things that we look at on the outside. Like I looked inside deeply and I was like, this is a good hearted person who's going to take care of me for the rest of my life. And so I'm very passionate about finding that for people. Like that's the most important decision you're going to make in your life is the person you decide to spend your life with. They will either support you and make you better or they will bring you down. And if you have someone who supports you and makes you better, then that's just like the best thing you can ever ask for. Definitely agree with that. I second, second that. I'm about to be a bitch right quick. You mentioned settling. You know, there's this old adage, it's not scientific fact, but like you can, let's say you're a seven, for example, you can go up to and you can go down to. That's like your, your range. So you can go basically from a five to a nine if you're a seven. Settling, some people would, it's going to be like winning the lotto to for me to get, I don't know, who's someone that, I don't know, we look up to, Beyonce, for, yeah. for example, right? Yeah. You know, I, I'm just not in her league. It is what it is. <laughs> I just got to. Well, I mean, settling as in not looks, but 
like don't settle for someone you don't have a connection with yes, right yes, that's what yes, i mean yes, like yes. you shouldn't settle for a person that you don't enjoy being with mm-hmm. that you don't feel joy to be with but also realizing that like some people will nitpick right they'll find yes. just the smallest flaw and everyone does it's not just women men women everyone does is they find a small flaw. i don't like the way that person it could be anything how the way they brush their teeth or the way they it's, it's small things right and we see it on TV, right? They'll show like examples of this, like women can't settle down or man can't settle down because like, oh, this woman, this, this, this man, this, whatever. And it's get over the small stuff and look at the big picture because ultimately you can look past all those things. Those are just, those are you. That's how you think in your head. Exactly. It has nothing to do with that person as their being, like what they bring to the table. Are they on the same table as you financially? Do they think about you morally the same way? Do they have the same thoughts about raising children or not having children for that matter? Whatever that is, that needs to be the same and that needs to be what clicks. Everything else can be worked through. Yes. That's what I tell people that are single when they're asking, what should I be doing when I'm looking for a partner? I say work on the emotion that you have when it comes to your thoughts. Because when you look at someone and you're nitpicking, you catch yourself nitpicking, what is that thought really saying, right? Is it, If it's a financial aspect, it might be because you grew up in a homeless situation to where you never want to be back there. Easily you can understand that. I, I like a certain thing when it comes to a lady. Right? I, like, I love an intelligent woman. That's just something that I, I'm attracted to. And that's because I feel that my woman is, I'm going to be judged by my woman. I j- individually feel that. And so as long as you know why you have X, and then you could decide, do I need to work on this? Or is this truly who I am? And then even if it's a truly who I am, it allows you to decipher the BS. Mm-hmm. You're like, nope, that's not it. They're, they look great, but they're not intelligent, for example. Or they look great, all they do is talk about sneakers or whatever the yeah. case may be. Yeah. No, it's important to know what you need in a relationship. And I think... Some people need that conversation. Like you're saying, you want someone that can have a really intelligent conversation with you. And some people need different things, right? But I think the 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 real um, commonality among most people is that everyone needs respect. Yeah. And so you have to respect your partner and they have to respect you. And if that's not there, it's not going to last. And security. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Definitely. So agree with that. So let's talk about sexology. Let's do it. Tell me. Let's talk about sex, baby. <laughs> Let's talk about you and me. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, one time I did a video where I sang that, but I was talking about stress and continence. I said, Let's talk about stress, baby. There's <laughs> <laughs> <was> like incontinence. <laughs> Tell us what is a sexologist. And I know there's different types of sexologists, so lay it all out there. When it comes to a sexologist, a clinical sexologist, a licensed mental health therapist or practitioner there's a lot of overlapping but there are some differences and i'll speak about it like from two different perspectives one is like a a collegiate perspective right as a licensed mental health therapist you gotta have at least a master's degree Mm -hmm. and be licensed in your state a sexologist is someone who meets all the requirements uh, from a governing body Um, for example the american board of sexology or a sect and then there is a clinical sexologist who is someone who has a master's degree who's met the requirements of a sexologist and then they are considered clinical. There isn't one that's better than the other. It's more so what do you need as an individual? People don't meet you where you are. You should meet people where they are. And so I think as a sexologist, you can do somatic healing. As a clinical sexologist, up until my knowledge, you cannot do somatic healing, at least if you are licensed in a state that doesn't allow somatic healing and or a country. And so... That's some of the biggest differences right there. I want to just kind of recap in terms of a clinical sexologist sort of works with the the mind and the brain and the thoughts around sex. 
whereas a somatic sexologist works on like sort of physical aspects of sex, sort of like sensation or body work or tantric sort of thing. So it, it depends on how their training was conceived, right? Just because someone is a, let's say a plastic surgeon, doesn't mean that someone from India, plastic surgery may be different from someone from Dr. Miami, plastic surgery, right? Mm -hmm. They're both plastic surgeons, they both have the title, but the things that they do may be slightly different. And I think it's the exact same within the sexuality world. Some of the things that I do and some of the ways that I can help in some, an individual my background is sexology. I became a board-certified sexologist because I meet the requirements for the American Board of Sexology. I've had over a thousand hours of training in the field, met countless clients in the field. I'm an authentic Tantra practitioner that is lineage-based Tantra. It's a bit different than, I think the word Tantra in and of itself is used in an unfortunate way. Uh, it's, it's overused. And with my lineage-based Tantra, our Tantra goes back um, 10 to 12,000 BC in the Indus Valley, which is like Northern India, or today Pakistan and India. And it's actually not rooted in patriarchy. It's rooted in matriarchy, which is the first ever in my entire life learned something that is rooted in non-patriarchy. And so the one word that I talk about when it comes to the work that I do and how I work with people is healing. It's healing from a causal aspect versus a systematic aspect. Um, symptomatic aspect. I think when we look at the word evidence, a lot of people that combat will, would like to combat the the training and the tools and the modalities that one may use. They say, well, what is it? Where is the evidence? And I say, well, what is evidence? You know, and then we can go down that conversation. And then normally it comes down to culture, right? Uh, because when I say lineage based, what I'm meaning and talking about within my authentic Tantra and how I am a sexologist is lineage is basically a long end study of lived experiences and evidence as well. And so I think when we talk about the word evidence, we need to ensure that we're knowing what they're talking about, right? But how I help individuals, a person could have vaginosis, anorgasmia, uh, pelvic floor issues, um, hormonal imbalances, PE, ED, so many different aspects that we can help, incontinence, uh, hot flashes. I mean, so many different things that uh, a list of things we could talk about uh, and within authentic Tantra, what that consists of is a lot of Taoist practices, a lot of Taoist sexual practices, somatic healing, nonviolent communication work in Western science. And so I think I mentioned this earlier. I would never tell someone if someone were to come to me, the first thing I'd normally say, let's say one of my friends that has, he, they feel, I'm thinking of one of my guy friends in particular, he feels he has erectile dysfunction. The very first thing I would say is go see your doctor, right? Go see your primary care physician, truly, because there's things that, it may not be anything with me. You might just be out of shape and smoke, smoke too much. Mm -hmm. And that's a, that might that can lead to a completely different thing. Now, if you are a healthy individual and like not 83 years old, no offense to my 83-year-olds, um, <laughs> you know, then we can have a conversation. It might be something different. And so I think the best way that I'm used so a person can get the best help out of me is I'm a part of their healthcare team and their healthcare system. Um, for example, I spoke with a young lady who wasn't able to squirt anymore. And not every woman can, not every woman, and that's not their goal and their prerogative. I'm speaking at one individual. And via our work, she was able to do that again, right? And I think a lot of what we do is help people to erode some of the conditionings and biases and the emotional traumas that they have. And the word trauma in and of itself is a buzzword. There's like nine different aspects of trauma that we can go down. I'm talking about from acute traumas to severe traumas to generational traumas to even buzzwords. Um, I learned from listening to someone that I was speaking about blue balls 
and they kind of got triggered and and a little annoyed and I could, the emotions started riling up in them. And I so love what I do because I can learn so much from people. It's it's just as equally me learning as them learning and, and them being helped. Uh, but in regards to this story, I was talking about blue balls and now I say the word pelvic tension because when I said that word, the B word, blue balls, I don't want to say the B word, but when I said that word, all, it brought up a lot for that individual. And what, what we found, what we came to find was that there was a lot of shame around that word because they felt shamed if a guy told them, hey, well, I have blue balls now. And this individual in particular felt that they had to perform and get a guy off. The ability to help someone get back to their infinitive self is what we do. What I'm gathering is that if someone is medically doing fine, or even maybe not medically doing fine, yeah, even not. they can benefit from additional work with a sexologist to work on the thoughts around things. But what about, what are sort of the physical things that you can offer them in terms of, because, you know, when I think of tantric work, I think of like, you're on the mat with someone like doing, right? Like from the, from media, right? That's what we, yeah, yeah. we learn about, right? Or like you're doing in front of them or uh, whatever it is. So maybe clear up those misconceptions. There is definitely hands-on work that could be done, like a yoni mapping, a lingam massage, a, a tantric massage, a yab yum, a yoni massage, a uh, different meditative techniques that can help rid you of the five core root poisons. When it comes to physically touching an individual, I personally don't do that. Mm-hmm. Just because, again, what we talked about earlier, that's, uh, I, no, <laughs> no, no, no. Won't do that. Uh, but there, I can help you go to another one, an, another person. But when it comes to that, we talk about anorgasmia, for example. Mm-hmm. Some people swear they cannot have and reach an orgasm. Mm-hmm. And they can go to the doctor. Or some people, for example, I'm a, I'm a male, so I'll speak about men, for example, premature ejaculation or erectile dysfunction. You can go to a doctor. A doctor can prescribe sprays, medications, devices, all kinds of things. Those are all symptomatic. But what is the cause of this that's going on? And so that's what we get to. And how do we help with that? For example, for lasting longer, there's what I like to describe Tantra as is the yoga of central nervous or the yoga of nervous system regulation. And so that's exactly what it is, the yoga of nervous system regulation. And so in going back to that, step one would be Learning to last longer and learning to relax for pleasure, which is really the the ultimate thing. <laughs> learning to relax for pleasure, not clench up your ass, you know, not say stopped, none of these aspects. You mentioned a few preventive things, and there's like four that I personally live by that I try to embody. You mentioned movement. I think that dancing, uh, just 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 getting it out. There, I, one of the best things I love that my girlfriend and I do is we will just I just grab her, spin her around, we just do a little dance. That dancing right there movement going to the gym does help so much but i feel i would be doing a disservice because again i have friends that unfortunately uh, were no longer here with us um, by their own doing and they were very active in the gym and so for those listening that are like well i'm still depressed but i i go to the gym or i i dance there's an aspect of it to where and this is kind of a, a part of what we do in as a sexologist is that we are trying to get to the root of the cause. And so one of the things that I feel when people go to the gym and they they hear, hey, working out is the most underutilized antidepressant, is that what it could do for those individuals that are still depressed but still go to the gym and still, let's say, you know, uh, dance and things is that when we're in the gym, we're not focused on it. We're focusing on that end result, make sure we get that PR, right? 
But then when we're back home, those other 23 hours of the day, what's going on? And so I feel that, you know, doing this for 30 minutes or, you know, two hours, however we may say it is great. And I do agree with it. But I think that for me, at least four pillars to a life free from suffering. And that's what I do as a sexologist. I try to help people live a life free from suffering, whether that be helping you with premature ejaculation, erectile dysfunction, uh, hot flashes, low libido, anorgasmia, vaginosis, pelvic floor issues, and the list goes on, is that for me, my four pillars are definitely movement. Agree, completely agree there. Connection is probably my biggest, I would say. Touching a human being, seeing a human being. I, I say this morbid joke, but even Ted Bundy would ride his bike in the town from time to time. And then it goes into you know, a bit further, but connection to me is the biggest one. Even with your pet and just connect with the sentience. Plants communicate with cymatics, right? And so have life, have living around you. And then we go into meditation. Uh, meditation could be what you know as meditation to be. It could be prayer. What meditation is, is to peace of mind. That's what it helps to nurture. And then the fourth one be being pleasure. I think so many of us may work out, communicate with others, may even meditate. And although the human brain is made for survival and is not made for happiness, happiness is a learned trait, the pleasure aspect is a big part of us that I think that people are forgoing. And when I say pleasure, I'm talking about like four aspects of pleasure. Of course, sexual pleasure being one of them, spiritual pleasure, physical and sensual pleasures, and then emotional pleasures as well. And so by having pleasure, by having connection, by having meditation, by having movement, I feel that live a life of bliss. And most of us aren't living a blissful life. We can be rich. We can go work out. We can have the best body. We can kind of connect with people, but we're missing. We, we can't receive pleasure. Some people can't receive pleasure. And so there's an aspect of something missing and it's at a causal level. It's not at a symptomatic aspect. It's a multifaceted, it's integrative, it's holistic. And so mind, body, spirit, and sex is where we as an authentic tantra practitioners come in. And this is why I started and I will end with see your doctor first. Yeah, and no, it's important. And there's definitely evidence behind um, connection, behind social integration is, is actually uh, the number one leading cause of death after cancer is actually not just being lonely, but not having the social integration in society. So like the interaction with your barista or the interaction with people on a day-to-day -day basis, which people even lose that, right? And so that's actually really important um, overall for preventing, for just overall health and happiness, um, definitely for movement. And, you know, pleasure hasn't been studied. You're right. Not in the rigorous way it needs to be. There's definitely data on the benefits of orgasm, the benefits of of all those things, there are significant, many, many benefits to orgasm in terms of overall physiology, mood, uh, depression, all those things. But all that being able to receive pleasure, it's a mental phenomenon, right? It is completely about being able to work through, there's there's issues there, right? Beyond there's why can't you receive pleasure, then there, that's something that you need to sort of ask yourself, what's, what, what's going on? Do you feel like you're not uh, able to receive pleasure? Is there something that you don't feel you're deserving of pleasure? Are there other factors in your life that are affecting that? And that's why we lean on our therapy colleagues, our sexology colleagues, our psychotherapy, our psychologists. And I think wherever you can get help is so valuable, right? Because you're going to connect, you're going to have a different approach. And I think it's really valuable. That right there. I love that you said that. You're going to have a different approach. The reason I wanted to come see you because I wanted a second opinion uh, for my initial urologist. You and my urologist, I'm assuming both got your training in Western society. Mm -hmm. 
I still want a second opinion, you know? And that's all I'm trying to say as a sexologist, right? I don't tell someone that there's no evidence to support what you have. I say, hey, I want a second opinion. What do you have to say? Yeah. And that's just the place I come from in that regard. Yeah. And I think people have to feel like comfortable with whatever they're they're going to. So if someone says they don't believe your evidence, I mean, people will come to me and say they don't believe my evidence, right? Like, it's okay. Then, you know, you probably need to see someone else. Like, I I, I can't help you. You might want to see someone else. Like, this is Uh, about. But, but yeah, if you have some tips, let's say, what is the most important thing if someone says, how can I have better sex? Why do we communicate during sex? Because one, our partner is our mind reader. So tell the individual what you like, how often, how we, we, with kindness, with love, kindness, and compassion, with please and thank yous. Telling someone please turns a demand into a request. Saying thank you is showing and letting that person know that X was done and received, right? Um, when, anytime that you have something on your mind, oftentimes what happens is that you got to get out of your head and into your body, right? You got to become present. Well, the way to become present is to, when there's something going on, say it. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the moment I told my girlfriend I loved her, honestly, we were having a sexual act and I couldn't be present because I was just like, I love this girl so much and I wasn't present in the moment. And I just knew I had to tell her what was on my mind and that was it. And it made, it, it made us so much closer, right? But then there's often times to where a lot of people I've, I've spoken with, a lot of my clients have said, well, I don't feel like talking to you. And it's more, I can't say what's on my mind. And that right in and of itself is a block. And if you have blocks, then you're not able to experience the full orgasm pleasure that is awaiting for you. And when I say orgasm pleasure, I'm talking about, again, the definition of how I define what orgasm is, is peaks of pleasure. Not all pleasures wouldn't be level 10, oh my God, right? Because we can, we're not going to go into this, but we can go into the 15 plus ways that a woman can have an orgasm or the 11 plus ways that a man can have an orgasm. Not all of them are evidence-backed. And then it would go f- into the aspect of learning to relax. The reason men ejaculate so fast is because their nervous system from a nervous system perspective is like, oh, well, okay, I, I feel pleasure. I feel pleasure. I'm going to go, you know, when it's like when you learn to relax, you can learn to shut off that. And so therefore that valve doesn't happen. And so therefore you might be in the uh, emission, but you're not in the ejaculation phase, right? And so when it comes to how do I have pleasurable sex, relax. I definitely encourage people to write into the feeling scene. It's a community to where you can ask your question, get professional help. And the cool thing is we have Doctors, we have therapists, and we have sexologists, clinical and not. Well, I think you hit on a few of them. I think uh, communicating and figuring out what you like is probably the number one thing. So knowing what you like, communicating it with your partner, and then doing it, right? Practicing it. like, And then keep it diverse. Keep it different. Because that's how sort of when you when the novelty wears off is when you start, like, it's just not as good as it used to be, right? So having diversity, whether it's self-love or with a partner, like, don't just don't always do the same thing, right? And and communicate and know what you like, know what works for you, and be open to trying different things. I think that's really the best part of it. And then when you know that when you've tried different things, you can find things that may be more pleasurable, right? Um, you know, you can find other erogenous zones. So spend time on other parts of your body, not just the jet. Like it's not all genital all the time. Right. right? So I think there's a lot that can be done and, and truly it can change the intensity of your orgasm. It can change your relationship and connection with that person when you're trying new things, right? You're being vulnerable and you're being open to being vulnerable. Every human wants respect. And I said, I agree. I think that there's two things that every human wants, respect and security, because the security aspect, what vulnerable really is, is just being courageous. That's what it is, just being courageous. Um, in order for us to become courageous, or we need to create 
a level of security in that regard. And so that's what creates That's what normally a courageous act is to get security. And so when we have both, when you talked about uh, novelty, right? A part of novelty is to have security. Are you and or your partner secure? Or that might be something within yourself that is a block. There's three blocks to bliss. Lack of awareness, lack of sensation. I'll talk about myself, individual. I've been circumcised. I, to this day, don't have 100% sensation in every aspect of my lingo or my penis, right? I have started to slowly work on getting sensation back. And so that's number two. And then there's a lack of education. You know, you also shared with me an experience you had of going to the urologist when you were young. Do you want to, I think it's very important for people to hear because I will say your story that you told me is not so dissimilar to a lot of young men I see. And I think, uh, I think it'll help people. So I was 18 years old, healthy, young, 18. I, I had asthma. Um, I had a young lady that I was into. I was having sex at the time. We are not married, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so it was premarital, yeah. I was having premarital sex. I was attracted to the lady. My Johnson wasn't, he wasn't doing his thing. I went to go see a urologist. I was scared. And for whatever reason, I've never been shy to seek counsel. And this is why I'm really big on integrative approach because I think there's nothing wrong with having a Western pr- perspective, a Eastern perspective, but to be succinct to the, to the question. So I was 18, went to the urologist because my penis didn't get hard. The urologist does all the tests, check my blood, has me pull my pants down, check my penis. Um, everything looks all right. Everything is good to go. And he literally told me, and I'll never forget these words, your mom just instilled good values in you. Your mom just instilled good morals in you. I was like, what the fuck do I do with that information? I, I, I genuinely, I didn't tell my mom. Yeah. I was like, what, what, what is this? I'll never forget it. And that's a part of what I'm talking about. So that individual, he may have said, hey, go see the sexologist, right? And then it became an aspect of shame. I, I had a lot of shame around that because I was questioning my sexuality. I didn't get hard. Does that mean I'm, I don't like women? And I couldn't have that conversation with my home, but I could, but I was scared to because I didn't want them to have a new joke to talk about, you know? Mm-hmm. At that time, I was like 6'4", 130 pounds, so I don't add to the jokes, you know? And so, yeah, I had nowhere to go. Thank you for sharing that. I think it's really important to highlight that that's not a dissimilar situation that a lot of people experience. Um, and it's sad because I think especially when you're young, any young man, really, it's very terrifying to yeah. go to the urologist. And I see it all the time. It's um, extremely vulnerable when we talk about vulnerability. But, you know, you're looking for something more than just a, your mom had yeah. g- gave you good morals. Right. <laughs> uh, and and you, that needs time and that needs uh, attention if you have an experience like that, I, you know, thankfully you didn't, you, you've, you've gotten better. Things are better. Things are fine. But um, for some people that can be traumatizing. And I hope that if you experience that, if anyone listening experiences something like that, please seek second opinions. Maybe consider seeing a sexologist, see a sex therapist, see someone. See somebody. Uh, because sex is so important and the data is is so behind on so many things that we have to uh, improve sexual function. And, you know, we're a very like oncocentric research society. We spend a lot of money on research for cancers and it's very important, very, very important. But when someone has a problem with sex, it affects their whole life. And I'm sure you can relate, like you are stressed, you are anxious, you're thinking about it all the time. You're like, am I broken? Is something wrong with me? Am I gonna be fixed again? Wherever you get help, please just get help because 
you you can get better you will get better you are not broken and sometimes it's normal just for things not to work i think that's also important for yeah. people to know it's not always going to be at attention when you want it to be there's a lot of factors stress alcohol whatever anxiety that can play a huge role in the inability to get an erection i i, I agree with you i second everything you said i just wish my urologist would have been like hey i have a friend that's a sexologist that maybe would help you with the nervous system i've done all my checks you're not smoking um, you're not drinking, um, you're healthy. Um, it seems as if this may be a sympathetic and a parasympathetic issue that's going on. Let me help you get with someone that can help you with the anxiety that you feel. We could argue who's a, a figure that we all go to for authority in the medical space. World Health Organization is one of them, I would argue, and CDC is another one, you know. Mm -hmm. The World Health Organization, they define mental health and they define sexual health. And in, when they define sexual health, they talk about mental when they define mental health, they don't speak about sexual health. And I feel that there is a, an atrocity. I think that most sexual problems that we face affect us mentally in some regards. 100%. We do need to spend time in this area, amongst other areas. Like, this isn't the only area that we need to take yeah. check. We only had America for 247 years, so there's lots of areas that we need to look at. Uh, but for me in particular, my entire mission for the rest of my life is to uh, weave mental and sexual health because I feel that we can save lives. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think it's a huge factor. Um, I want to be respectful of your time. So I have some final questions that I ask everybody. They're just sort of rapid response. Okay. Yes. Oh, what is something you know now as a 35 year old man that you wish you learned earlier? It's okay to not know everything. That's a good one. And I think that's just smarter when you say, I'm just not fully certain. Uh, what is a non-negotiable? Something that you do every day that if you miss it, you cannot go on. Like you have to do it the four pillars, uh, meditation, movement, connection, and pleasure. And of course, brother ain't got time for this all the time. So it can become brushing my teeth, can be me being mindful. If you could change the world with one thing, and I know there's lots of things that the world needs to change, um, what would it be? In this country specifically, we separate church and state. I think we should separate medical from financial. Thank That's you. a really good one. No, I, I think that is truly an issue in this country. I mean, our healthcare expenditure is enormous and our outcomes are not as good as some countries. And so there's there's obviously a misbalance there. And there's a lot of lobbying that occurs from a lot of very wealthy organizations that is causing a lot of issues in these areas. Um, and it's a it's uphill battle. <laughs> uh, uh, uphill battle. Love the people that that fight that battle <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and then what's one it can be a life hack or a health hack that you wish people knew this is something that we all know but i think that it's hard for us to realize it is that comedy is one of the best medicines whenever i get really sad i'm put i'm putting on amy c i forget i forget her last name amy c she's the funniest woman to me right now the funniest person to me right now so just comedy you know use comedy to heal that's awesome yeah well, thanks so much. Where can where can people find you, find your newsletter? Tell us. Well, hopefully, Dr. Rena Malik is going to write an article for us, and you can read it at feelingscene.com. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say that. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> no, truly, thank you. Um, I, I've said it off air. I think that the ability to say something great behind someone's back is what we truly all want, and you are someone individually that my friends and I speak so highly of you. Um, truly, you're doing great work, and 
you're highly respected amongst my friends in my community. You're someone I've watched for years. I'm honored to be here. It's so amazing uh, for all those listening how I want to be like you. I want to be intelligent and speak uh, so well. But something that you've told me is that you just got to do it. And, you know, I'm fresh, extremely fresh into this world. But, you know, don't let that thing hold you back. And so I appreciate that. That's something I gained from you. Thank you. Thank you guys so much for listening to this podcast. If you've enjoyed it, please be sure to check us out on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and review. This really helps other people find our podcast and is a simple zero-cost way to support us. If you are listening to our podcast, feel free to check out our podcast on YouTube where you can watch the video recordings of each podcast as well. And you can find more content to improve your health on all of our social media platforms at Rena Malik MD on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and more. And as always, remember to take care of yourself because you are worth it.